Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast for another week. Proudly sponsored by Subway, nothing's as big as a footlong. Matt Walsh back in the host chair. Thank you very much to Jared Barker, by the way, for stepping in over the last couple of weeks. Jake Michaels and Christian Jolly with you today as well. And there's a bit to get to. It's a Tuesday midday record today and David Noble is on the way out at North. The top end of the ladder has tightened up again. The Suns posted a famous victory, maybe their best ever. Uh, and the Cats topped the ladder for the first time since round one. Jake, good to see you again. Is the top eight set? It is, I think. Good to have you back. And uh, I I echo what you say about JB. Fantastic job stepping in for you while you're away. Um, I, think it is, I think it is set. I don't, not necessarily the order, but I, with those eight teams have been in the eight for the last couple of weeks. And just looking at the two that probably are challenging to come in, St Kilda and the Bulldogs, who play this this Friday night, which is going to be an epic elimination final of sorts, I think they both just have really tough draws, and I, I find it hard to see them either of them getting in. So I do think that the eight teams we're looking at now are going to be the eight teams playing in September. Christian, I'd looked at the ladder as well, and my thoughts uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago were I could see Collingwood dropping out. Their percentage wasn't as strong as other sides in the eight, and there are teams outside the eight with a stronger percentage than the Pies. But they're now two games inside the eight. Can you sort of see them dropping out, given the way that they're playing at the moment? No, again, I'd, yeah, two games is a pretty good buffer. But Collingwood, are, and they've been like this since round one, they're, they're hard to play against. They don't get smashed. They don't sort of, they haven't had a really, really poor quarter, um, you know, where they've sort of conceded five or six goals in a, you know, in a, in a quick run and sort of, you know, lost a game within a quarter. So, yeah, the way they play, I think it holds them in good stead. Um, you know, an easiest draw, I think, still to come for mm. them. Um, so, yeah, I think they're pretty safe. And you're right, I, I was probably looking at, yeah, the Bulldogs were going to take somebody's spot in that eight, three or four weeks ago, but it's getting harder and harder for them um, every loss. It's funny how you can look at teams, you know, eight eight weeks ago, you know, just as a Carlton supporter looking ahead to who we're playing. And I thought, you know, we've got a nice run home and playing Collingwood in round 23, easy win. And all of a sudden you lose to Collingwood <laughs> and then Collingwood goes on a run. They look like a top eight, who knows, maybe a top four side. Mm-hmm. And you think all of a sudden that's, that's, that goes from a, should be winning that 85% of the time to that's a genuine 50-50 game. So it's funny how the ladder predictors change based from one week to the next in terms of how a team's performing. Absolutely. I think well, one of the predictions I'd like to also go back to at the start of the year was, Christian, you mentioned that um, teams that get flogged in a grand final struggle to make finals the next year. The The stat was quite overwhelming, if I remember correctly. It's starting to look like it might be uh, the case for the Bulldogs again. Yeah, it was, uh, it was either missed finals or even the teams that had made finals. I think um, they played three finals between them and lost all of them, mm. the eight or ten teams that have lost by at least. It was a 48-point margin in the grand final, um, so they were well over that margin. And, yeah, just a, a, a quirky one, but you can almost, you know, I'm sure there's a little bit of psychology behind it and you can almost, you know, go into a study of it, but it is. It's almost like you you lose by that much in the ultimate game the year before. Mm. Uh, I don't think it's it's probably not representative of what the, what happened to the Bulldogs this year. But do you just change too many things up, and you know you sort of do, you just Trying go away from your best? And, yeah, so it's a, it's an interesting one. But yeah, Bulldogs just fall I, fall that way again. I feel like I actually just just that just reminded me watching the Super Bowl last year or last earlier in the year. I feel like I saw a similar stat with this. It was something like the last fifteen losing quarterbacks in their first Super Bowl never made it back to another one. So it's it's kind of maybe it is more of a psychology sort of thing about just being able to get back and struggling the, the year after. But it's fascinating how it works, and isn't it? It's, it's a tough cape at the NFL though. Thirty-two teams vying for 
two spots really you, there's a few yeah. a few extra sides in there to try and battle you, yourselves against but yeah. Um, yeah if you're if you're not the Tom Brady or, or one of these kind of guys you, you do struggle to make the, the big dance every single year uh, before we get into the main body of the podcast and we'll touch on the dogs a little bit later as well something we noticed from round 17 Jake uh, I'm going to look at Tom Papley. A uh, couple of little quirky things. So he had 17 score involvements um, in that game against the Bulldogs, which w- was pretty crazy because they only had they had 35 scores the Swans. So he was involved in pretty much half of them, and of his 24 disposals, 17 of them were score involvements. It was easily the most for the game, and we're currently working on trying to find out where it ranks for the year. But it seems to be pretty high, I think, Christian. Yeah, I think 17 will be up there for the year. won't be the highest. Um, I think there's been Stevie J's around 18 or 19. Just, uh, yeah, just struggling to get the report to run with the internet in here from this uh, but that Stevie from our J, new recording that's, studio. Yeah. That Stevie J game was the one where Geelong kicked like 200 points or something against Melbourne that day. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah Considering we, Sydney only kicked 120 points, I think it's it's a fair percentage. Yeah, I think you're saying it was 17 out of 35. Yeah. So 35 scores for Swans and 17 score involvements for Papley, which is, yeah. And the other good. part of that was, so he kicked 2-5 for the day um, and Buddy kicked 2-5. So kind of a weird little symmetry there between between those two and then in the in the game the Carlton West Coast game Harry Mackay and Charlie Kerner both kicked 5-3 so two score lines mirrored by teammates that you don't often see too much 5-3 and 2-5 bit of numerology from you yeah get Cam Mooney around <laughs> <laughs> Christian something from the weekend's action that took your fancy uh, similar lines I mean I looked at forwards and Again, it was probably more on the Sunday. Um, I worked on the Hawthorne Adelaide game. Mitch Lewis's first half was as good a first half I've seen from any key forward this year. Um, and then we saw Charlie and Harry for Carlton kick five each against West Coast. Just thinking how flush the game is with uh, key forwards 25 or under. Um, so again, I feel like we, we, we looked at this earlier um, in the year in terms of what age each position peaks. And I think key forwards was around 29, 30, 31. But just some of the names that we're already seeing, um, that are, yeah, as I said, 25 or under, you got Charlie Kerno, Mitch Lewis, Harry Mackay, Aaron Norton, Peter Wright, Max King. I think they're all in your A graders bracket safely. Next, just below them, Eric Hipwood, Logan McDonald, Harrison Jones, Mitch Georgiatis. Um, and you still got, you know, Eugle Hagen can be anything, Nick Larkey. Um, and then two injured guys, Ben King and Oscar Allen, still to come in. I think, you know, yeah. Ben King's already. Um, Did we say my man Todd Marshall? Todd Marshall, I've got his name on the list. I might have yeah. skipped over oh. his name, but yeah, yeah, no, he's another one that's in there. So again, there's about 15 or 16 names where you can all see them. Again, players like Harrison Jones, I think, you know, got a huge future. Can definitely see him being mm. a number one forward in any team that he plays for. So there's there's 18 genuine key forwards for the 18 teams for the next five or 10 years, hopefully. So yeah, I think we're flush with key forwards at the moment. Return of the big man. Uh, your man seems to rotate every second week, Jake. Well, I was very cold on Todd Marshall for five years but I, you can't deny he's he's become a he's become a very good player certainly has uh, something I noticed Bombers great win against the, the Lions on the Saturday night up at the Gabba albeit Lions fairly undermanned it's, it's fair to say um, but in the celebrations afterwards something took my attention and Sam Draper I love Sam Draper I think he's such an interesting character um, bit of a cult hero got the flowing mullet got the moustache going on uh, but 
footy is a very affectionate game, I find. When you're celebrating with players, the little taps on the bum, the high fives, the, the hair scrunches and all that. But Sam Draper decided to show Matt Guelphie a little bit of extra love after the win and planted one of the biggest smooches on his on his lips that I've ever seen. And I thought, isn't that just wonderful to sort of see this sort of affection on the lips. from teammates after a win? Yeah, Sam Draper, he's gone and grabbed him. He's done the, he's done the double cheek grab, planted a big one on his lips and Matt what? Guelphie's walked away. What was his reaction like? Oh, it was pretty normal. I think it, it must be pretty normal for Sam Draper to sort of wander around giving smooches on the lips. But I just thought I'd point that out and say it's nice to see a bit of uh, affection on the on the footy field. Yeah, nice to see the Bombers uh, up and about as well, enjoying a few wins. Are you smiling when you say that? Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. They're still well below us on the ladder. <laughs> Uh, let's get into it. So North and David Noble have parted ways. News broke this morning. Uh, that's Tuesday morning for those of you not listening on the day that this is released. And it kind of brings to the end a, a couple of months of, of really tumultuous times for North, whether it be on the field or, or off the field. And there's been a lot said about Noble and his coaching strategies and the way that he um, talks to players. And there's been obviously a lot of um, interest at board level and, and the CEO level at this at this position. And we've now seen that he's been moved on uh, just one and a half years into his tenure, which is pretty rare, I think, for a coach to be not given that amount of time, Jake. So obviously there's a lot to digest here, but how do we look back at his tenure? And, and can you sort of definitively say that the 5-28 and 28 or 5-38 five, five record uh, that he has is, is really his fault? Yeah, well, I I think there's a massive amount of it which I would say is not his fault. And if you'd told me that he would be he'd be gone a year and a half or a year and two thirds um, through his tenure when he got the job, you'd say you'd say, "Gee, how bad did it have to get for that to happen?" So, you know, I look at North Melbourne now and I just think they're in a really really horrible position. They've lost their coach. They're going to start again. They're going to have a new coaching plan. It's going to be another two, three years of just bottom of the barrel, trying to keep players, no one wanting to go, their players wanting to leave. And I just don't know where to next. And I don't know why. We we stood here a few few weeks ago and we were talking about Noble and just saying how much longer. I've always said you've got to give a coach three years, especially when they're coming into a club that's struggling on the bottom of the ladder. I don't know what people expected him to be able to do. Yes, you can look at the results and say, you know, you look at all these 50-point losses, 50-plus uh, point losses, um, and, and it's not great. But is any coach going to come in and really make a, an immediate impact? I don't personally believe believe that's going to happen, no matter, who you, no matter who comes in. So is he a little bit unlucky? Yeah, I think he probably is. But, you know, as, as we're sort of starting to find out, maybe he never really wanted to have this gig and... And who knows who knows where to now for North? I think it was probably the easy decision in the end, given the sort of swirling controversies surrounding the way that he, uh, his coaching methods, the way he interacts with players, a bit of sort of, you know, whispers of, of the way that he kind of treats the players mm. as well. It, I don't think it surprises me that, especially given there's, um, you know, someone looming like Alistair Clarkson, played for the club. So there's this sort of link here as well, and, and and the Giants are also seeking a coach, and there could be you know further coaching moves made before the end of the season. I don't think it surprises me that that Noble, you know, having overseen the, the last couple of years of this sort of slash and burn regime, is going to be moved on and and, and maybe sort of uh, goes up from here. But I think you're right. North's been look. Ben Cunnington's probably their best player and hasn't played all season. Yeah, um, there are sort of other extenuating factors. Uh, Luke Dan Davies Uniacs had a, a really fantastic year and has shown what he can do, but others might have gone backwards. Um, so, I feel I feel sorry for him, but it's kind of like what happened with David Teague at Carlton. It's like, well, 
you, you can bring someone in with a fresh approach and it might turn around for them. So, I mean, look, I don't know how you want to, how you want to spin it, but Jeff Walsh came in to, to do this review at North and, and less than sort of two or three weeks later, uh, Noble's on the way out. So clearly he obviously saw something that he wasn't happy with at that club. So I think like running my eye over the numbers and sort of talking about, you know, exactly what you sort of said there. I mean, Ben Cunnington hasn't played all year, so they've, they've needed to play the kids and find, you know, hopefully diamonds in the rough from the, from the youngsters. They've had 24 guys this year that are aged 24 or under. Only one of those guys is positive on the relative ratings, which we've spoken about before, which is looking at your position, how you're performing at that age, and how you go against other guys at similar age. So Luke Davies Uniac is plus 3% for a midfielder. Um, so it's almost, you know, his, his output is as it should be for his age. Yep. And then you've got 23 guys in the negatives, Tom Powell, Tristan Jerry, uh, Paul Curtis, Horn Francis, we know about, Jai Simpkins, so these sort of guys. So... If I'm a North supporter, all I'm looking for for the next five or six weeks is just a little bit improvement from this this young group of players. There's, you know, they're, they're so far behind in terms of, you know, and there's only five or six weeks left. You're not going to be turning the game plan around this year or trying to get, you know, let's try to score 100 or let's try to keep, you know, teams to less than 65. I'll be throwing all that out the window and just say, I just want to see Tom Powell get 20 touches. I need to see Jai Simkin go back to doing what he was doing two years ago and winning five or six clearances a game and dominating the midfield. But... For me, that's really been the biggest issue toward you know in the last five or six weeks as they're getting smashes. All right, now you just got to start to look for the future, and the more you sort of looked into the numbers of what does the future look like for North Melbourne, it was looking pretty bleak. Uh, yeah, in recent times, it was a slash and burn though, wasn't it, Jake? It was. I don't think anyone at North was under much illusion that it would be a tough few years. But but then why is he on his? Why is he packing his bags so soon? And and if that's the case, and I agree with Christian, like you do want to see. That's alarming. The fact that so many players are performing young players, well, yeah, yeah, you know. So that that just tells you tells everyone the talent isn't there. So mm. what do we what do we expect? Do we expect them to go out and win six or seven games in in the season? That's unrealistic considering the players that are on the list at the moment. So if that's the case, and I do agree, why not give him to the end of the season? Why not see if he, as the coach, can try and get that out of some of the players and then make the decision at the end of the season? I still think two full years is too short, but at least it, at least you do get two full years as opposed to one and one and two thirds. Yeah, well, Lee Adams will take over for the remainder of the season. Uh, North, obviously, a down towards the bottom of the ladder. You know, and then and then there's fresh ideas that come in that come in then, and then who knows what happens next year if it's if he gets the job or if it's Alistair Clarkson or if it's Nathan Buckley, whoever gets the the job for next year, and then it changes again. So that means in the space of three years, then some of the players that are on the list will have will have been exposed to four different head coaches. Interesting times at North, that's for sure. Uh, from the bottom of the ladder to the top, the Cats are top of the ladder for the first time since the end of round one. A couple of months back, they were seventh on the ladder. They were five and four, and there were doubts about whether they'd be even making finals. They've now rattled off sort of seven on the trot, and I don't know. Are they flag favourites in anyone's mind here? Um, They should, yeah. I think they are. I think they're... Brisbane has taken a step backwards. I know they've 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 had some serious injuries and also health and safety issues as well. Um, Melbourne has obviously taken a step backwards since the incredible start to the season, and Geelong just keeps getting better um, every year. Jake, yeah, I, I think they're you know they're not the bookmakers' favourite as we speak, but in my eyes, I think they are the team to beat, and it's. It's not like 
they're doing anything drastically different from previous years, Christian. We saw at the start of the year they tried to tweak the game plan just a little bit. And clearly it, it worked for some games where they won and then in other games it, it, it looked like they exposed. But it seems like they've kind of reverted to old faithful in a sense and, and really using the same players. I don't think really, apart from maybe Sam DeConning and Tyson Stengel, the makeup of the 22 has changed that drastically. Yeah, it is. It's very much... Um very similar to, to what it looked like last year. But you're right in terms of, I, th- I feel like even their early season game style, it wasn't to fool us or anything, but it was almost, it was, it, yeah, it wasn't a true reflection on how they were planning to play. It was sort of just horses for courses, maybe the, the games that they, the, the actual opponents they were playing in that, in those games. It made it look like they were starting to sort of play more direct with the footy, uh, kick the ball longer and more forward than they were last year. But that probably after about three or four weeks, they, you're right, they started to revert back to what they knew and, and had it done well previously in the past. And again, we talk about the past three or four years, keep finishing, you know, top three or four home and away season, just hadn't got the job done in finals and won the ultimate prize. So didn't feel like they needed to change a lot. But again, they've, they've just made some slight little tweaks where I think it sort of helped them. And, and their biggest sort of uh, jump up from last year, especially, is in the defensive end. So um, contested ball, they've actually gone backwards. So they've always been top one or two for contested ball for the last four or five years. This year, they've gone down to fifth. So they're plus 4.4 per game for winning the contested ball. But it's sort of reflecting their tackle differential numbers. Previously, in the past three or four years, they were in the negative. They were always tackling less than, you know, fewer times in their opposition. So differential, they were 14th, 15th, and 13th for tackle differentials across the past three years. This year, they're number one with plus 5.7. So sort of, Mm. um, you know, that robbing Peter to pay Paul type thing, sort of Stepping back a little bit at that helter scale to go at that contested ball, try to win the contested ball, but be more prepared to actually put the pressure on if we do lose the contested ball. Because previously, again, they were the best contested ball team in it, but if they lost it, ball would go down the other end. And last year, they were, you know, they ranked 10th for stopping a team for scoring once inside 50. So, talk about premiership standards, teams usually in the top six or not top four for that stat um, for defending your back 50. They were 10th last year. There's sort of tweaks in their game style. They're not going as hard in at the contested ball, tackling more, sort of putting a bit more pressure on um, the opposition. They're actually the hardest team to score against inside 50 this year. So they've taken away yeah. the, the mantle that Melbourne had last year of the best defensive team. Geelong now have that mantle. So again, looking at their premiership standards report, which is you know all the key things you want to finish top six in, you're right. In terms of comparing them to Melbourne and Brisbane, there's a lot more ones and twos in Geelong's columns than there is at Melbourne and Brisbane at this time of year. Passes the eye test too, Jake, because you look most most weeks, any given week, um, the, the Cats intercept from their back 50 unbelievably well. Tom Stewart, the best in the game at it. Sam DeConning has come on uh, at a rate of knots and has allowed Mark Litsavs to play elsewhere, which has allowed Reese Stanley to take the ruck mantle and actually play some consistent footy. So you can kind of tell that this kind of footy has worked for them and the fact that they've been able to plug and play a 20-year-old key defender with such success um as an opposition fan you think geez i'm sick of geelong but geelong fans must be stoked that they've been able to Mm. find these little tweaks that have worked so well yeah and i think the thing that really stood out for me um against melbourne uh on thursday night was the fact that and i remember saying this probably eight weeks ago on the podcast was was sort of posing the question are they too reliant on jeremy cameron and tom hawkins uh, and you can also throw Tyson Stengel in there as well as the three leading goal kickers by a fair way for the club this year. Those three combined for, I think, two goals in that game against the team that most people say is the best team in the comp and has the best defense in the in the comp. They still won the game by 28 points and still kicked 12 goals. Uh, 12-19, mind you. So they really could have kicked... They really could have done a, a more of a number on Melbourne. Mm. 
So the fact that they didn't have to rely on Cameron and Hawkins to, to kick eight between them, and they got goals through, I think, Guthrie and Duncan both kicked two. Gary Rowan might have kicked a couple as well. Um, and just got goals from from other avenues as well. Just shows that they are spreading the low well, and I think that's one of the most impressive parts about the Cats. And not just in the forward line. I think elsewhere, you look at someone like Tom Atkins has really stepped up. Brad Close has had a pretty pretty yeah. strong year. Um, there are others that have just sort of taken the next step, which is so important for a group that we've probably in the past criticised those that come in on the fringes and can't quite you know contribute as much as what we'd, we'd hope. Mm. No, absolutely. I think Tom Atkins has done a great job going in there as... Um, high pressure tackling player and, and you know he played his junior football as, a, as an inside midfielder does it well Paddy Dangerfield back in the team now you know he came back uh, last week was it the week before and he kicked that goal within the first 15 seconds and you know it just adds adds that you know that's we know that's what he does that's just it's bursting from the typical stoppage. Dangerfield wasn't it, it is it's a typical Dangerfield goal and he adds another dynamic in that into that um, into that midfield as well we know he can go forward and he splits his time between the two um, you know, and then you've got guys like Selwood and Guthrie playing in there as well that are still playing at a high level. It, it, it. Yeah, even we haven't even mentioned Chris Scott's most valuable player, and who mentioned him the other night, and he, he was good. Mark Blixarves again, just that ability yeah, well, you talk is he, about. Is he the most valuable player? Well, he play anyway. You know, it depends. Yeah, it depends on how you use the, t- how you define valuable. But in terms of to be able to give you so many different things in one mm. one type of player, he's he's been awesome at it. And again, you talk about having a twenty year old key defender. That's where Blixars was used to plug holes, but they've used him up on the ruck. And then when Stanley's going well in the ruck, they can just push him onto the wing. Or I don't think you can underestimate Reece Stanley actually having a, a consistently decent season as well, and what that means for someone like Blixars. Yeah, but as I said, even on Thursday night, I think Blixars went. Um, you know, it was almost fifty percent ruck and thirty percent midfield tagger at some stages um, as a cooler on Oliver. I think so. Yeah, it just having exactly having blokes like that and and having guys like Stengel come into the forward line. It's yeah, it's it's helped release other guys and you know sort of change other people's roles around. Another clash of potential finalists this weekend. Well, one of them will definitely be the finalists, but Cats and the Blues, Jake, mm. pretty big one. MCG Saturday night. Where do you see this one heading? Yeah, I, I just wonder where we're going to go once the once Geelong play that tempo football, which they can play so well, and and I think that's probably another part of part of Geelong's game that we haven't we didn't really touch on before. It's it's the way they can sort of play the slow game and then speed up when they have to and I think Carlton could really struggle with that and that could be the downfall on, on Saturday night Carlton's strength is their midfield and their clearance ability mm. we talked about the Cats and how they're more happy and willing to tackle a lot more the Blues are one of the hardest teams to tackle in the competition so there's this maybe you're right there's these interesting sort of sub battles you've got the two tools for the Cats up one end, you've got the two tools for the Blues mm. down the other. Um, the midfield battle is obviously going to be crucial. I think it's I think it's going to be an absolutely cracking match. Christian, have you got any insights as to what you think, which way this one might go? No, again, you probably summed it up perfectly. I, I, I Similar to Jake, I think if you look at the three lines, um, Carlton's forward and Geelong's defence, I think Carlton's forward probably, you know, slightly better than Geelong's defence, but quite even there. I think Carlton's got a better midfield, but Geelong's forward line is the line. Mm. When you line that up to Carlton's defence, you think, well, that's the line that could really trouble yeah. the other one. And again, yeah, the the ability just to throw Cameron uh, further up the field and have him playing sort of centre forward and even centre bounce at some st- stage, I can't see a Carlton player able to sort of going with him mm. into the midfield um, further up. So... Yeah, again, I'll, I'll be tipping Geelong, um, but as a Carlton supporter, I'll be sitting there quietly going, well, 
we've never really been that competitive. I mean, we've had some surprise upsets against Geelong, but we've never gone to a game against Geelong and expected to be competitive against them. This will be the first time in a long time we say, well, I think we've actually got a chance. So. There you go. Hey, Gold Coast Suns, big win on the weekend. And after the siren win against the Tigers, which is a bit of deja vu because it has happened once before, mm. up in Cairns, Carmichael Hunt uh, booted a winner after the siren to deliver a famous victory. Was it in their first season or their second season? I think it was their first. Yeah, it was could well it have not? been. Yeah, you, you might be right. We'll have to um, double check that one. Yeah. But for what it means for the Suns now, it, the win keeps them in touch with the eight because not only did they beat a side and get the four points, yep. they beat a side just above them on the ladder, which which kind of closes the gap between those two. And they're not without a chance still to make the finals, even though we've all kind of said that the eight's probably not going to change. Mm-hmm. Is that the best win in their club's history? I, I don't think it's their best win. I mean, I think they had a they had a couple of wins. What's best though? I mean, they had a couple of unexpected wins at the SCG against Sydney, which just were they were, you know, write your own ticket on how on what you pay out on them, um, which I think were probably more surprise shock wins. Mm. But in terms of a resilient performance, final still on the line. Um, you know, we've spoken about them not pl- they're playing all season without uh, Ben King, without their linchpin forward, um, down to a down. Big to a um, an experienced team in Richmond, albeit without some some of their star players, to be able to come back and win that game, and not only win it but it be tight at the end, and then and then to be able to show from the last two weeks where they've have fallen short in close games to be able to win one, and I did notice a bit of it. There, there, you could tell there was a bit of a difference in the way they played that last minute or two, um, the Suns as opposed to the previous couple of weeks. I thought it was ultra impressive and. Yeah, well, I won't say it's the most unexpected win because they probably went into that game with a with a real shot. I think I actually did tip them going into the game. I thought they were a chance to win. Um, I certainly didn't think they would when they went 40 points down. But I think it was just about their best overall win, probably the best second half they've ever played. I'll, maybe I'll go with that. I said this might have been even on Twitter, so there might be receipts of this. I said this a couple of weeks ago when they lost to the Pies. I said it's a very typical Gold Coast loss where they're, they're still in the hunt for... For something, whether it be the game or the finals, they get close, but they just can't quite close out those clutch moments. And I think you're right. The way that they played was just this little bit different. It showed to me that they've learned as a group. Stuart Dew's probably progressing as a coach and can sort of teach these close, tight moments. Uh, and I was saying to you, Jake, today when we when we first came into the office, I said Richmond wins that 99 yeah, times out of 100. They do, and you know we we we're, we're praising the Suns now, and if if. Jaden Short doesn't give a 50-meter penalty away, they Richmond win. And if Jason Castagna doesn't miss that easy goal, then Richmond win. And if Dylan Grimes takes the mark at the end, Richmond win. And then we look at the Suns and say, oh, you know, they've lost three tight games in a row. Yep. But this game should have never really been tight. They were they did well to get themselves back in, win or lose. And the fact that they managed to get the ball forward, um, you know, crumb the ball, get it today, get it to Anderson, kick the goal, I thought it was a real testament to the Suns. And it was the resilience. And that's the thing that we've sort of been wondering where it is for this club and I think I said it last week I probably went I was probably a bit premature on it saying that nothing that Gold Coast could do now um you know so I sort of said that whatever they've done this year is a tick no matter what they do for the next seven rounds I'm still giving them a tick for the year well at half time you know in that second quarter I thought gee if they lose this by 75 points which was really looking like it could happen at one point this is a real. This will leave a sour taste, and then they could really fall off a cliff. 
to come back the way they did and keep their finals hopes alive. Mm. I, I, you know, I really hope they can. I hope they play finals. I really do. There's no team I really want to see play a final more than Gold Coast. I think they really deserve it the way they're playing. It's culture building sort of stuff, isn't it? A result like that, and and the way that I saw in the in the in the aftermath, I think the Suns Twitter account posted a, a video compilation from about 15 different crowd angles of, of people filming that last minute, and it was just wonderful to see. And the thing that I noticed was the videos were taken by everyone who was about 15 years or younger. And what struck me was, you know, the 10-year-olds in these videos or the six-year-olds going crazy at this goal. They know nothing but the Gold Coast Suns being on the Gold Coast. Mm. And so there's this going to be this growing connection with a club that, yes, has only existed for sort of 11, 12 years, but that's all that these kids know and they're growing up with it. And I think that is such a culture-building win. And we, we look at the club and its short history and we always look back to 2014 as kind of the club's best season or at least the first best first half of the season when they looked like they were going to be making finals before old Gary Ablett's shoulder kind of went out. Christian, we, we kind of tasked you with looking at comparing this season with that 2014 season and, and whether this might be the Suns' sort of best output so far. Yeah, and no, I think it... I think come to the conclusion that it clearly is this year because in in 2014 it only lasted to round 14. So at the end of round 14 they were in the eight, um, and Gaza popped his shoulder against Collingwood. The next week they lost, I think, by about five goals to the Bulldogs, dropped to ninth, and then never made the eight again. So looking at their complete year by the, by round 23 2014, their numbers had dropped and they were back to being you know a, a bottom six or seven team, and their numbers sort of reflected at it. But comparing their round one to 14 numbers from 2014 to their 2022 numbers. Um, yeah, just the, the the key indicators are just so much better this year. I mean, even if you look at contested possession differential back then in 2014, they were even, which they were sort of celebrating. They, they were negative 20, negative 10 in their first couple of years. They got to, you know, the number is negative 0.2 in those first 14 rounds of 2014, so they were quite happy to break even. Um, you know, now they're at plus five, which is the fifth best in the comp. So being able to win the ball there, inside 50 diff back then was plus three per game. It's up to plus six per game. Uh, time in forward half has probably been one of their most impressive things this year. So again, round one to fourteen, it was something they were doing really, really well. Uh, plus four minutes um, in their forward half back then, plus seven minutes this year, and both of those in 2014 and this year both ranked fourth. So again, looking at Gold Coast and sort of ha- having a foundation to build on, it's it's I think we can finally see it, and that's probably something we spoke about in the past past two or three years of. Where were they going? They kept switching game styles, we, we, and we just didn't know. They were going, getting a, a lot of high draft picks. They were getting some good names in there, but we sort of didn't know where did Raul and Lacocious and Rankin, where are these guys going to fit in? How good are they going to be? Mm. Um, you know, we've seen Will Brody move along, but I know that he was another high draft pick that sort of came in as an inside midfielder. But now I really feel, feel you know, whether it's, it's the whole season, you know, but definitely the last 10 weeks, I think this is the beginning of of the Gold Coast Suns' journey. And I'm probably the opposite to you guys. I wouldn't want them to make finals this year because I don't think they're ready to really have an impact in finals. So it'd be great to see them make finals, but then to lose by 80 points, you know, is it a similar thing to the Bulldogs' curse? That yeah, Get into finals when you're not ready, get smashed and that sort of thing. It's almost like I'd almost be banking on them next year. I think what we're seeing now is, as I said, it's, it's the start of Gold Coast's mm. journey. And I think, but yeah, if they're playing finals in 2023, again, that, that'll be when they're sort of starting to sort of push in and say, well, if we're going to have a, you know, not a dynasty, but we're going to have some a sustained period of success in finals, I think it'll be starting from 2023 onwards. This is a group that, a young group, or the younger parts of this group have now started to play sort of maybe those 40 to 50 games together, which is clearly very important when it comes to cohesion and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the names like, even someone like Ben Ainsworth, who's 25, almost 25, or so he's 24, you know, having a career best season by far, kicking goals, mm. um, 
getting a lot of touches as well, but contributing in ways that you two or three years ago you would have thought, oh, is he going to come along? But but he kind of finally is, and and that's just kind of the growth that I see from these. Yes, the team, but the individual players that are just sort of starting to find their mojo in in, in this sort of in this sort of um, theatre. Absolutely, and you know, you just said that you probably wouldn't want to see them playing finals, and I understand the, your point that you're making. And yeah, if they're going to make finals, they're probably going to finish eighth, and they'll play the the team that's fifth away from home. And yeah, it could you know it could get ugly, but maybe you know who knows. But let's just have a look at their run home, their last six games. So they play Essendon this week; they're a favourite. Then they play Brisbane in the in a Q clash, which you kind of like we've said about Carlton Geelong. They've gone into every Q clash pretty much just about as the underdog, but. This will be a different one. This will be this will be the first time they'll be playing one with something actually on the line. Um, and we know Brisbane have been struggling a little bit of late. We don't know who's going to be back in the team for that. Then they've got West Coast and Hawthorne. They'll be favourites in both those games and should be winning both those games. Then they've got Geelong. Obviously, that's a tough game. Probably lose that one. And they end the season with North Melbourne. So th- there's four games they'll be significant favourites in. If they were to, if they were to somehow be able to upset Brisbane, if they can go and beat Essendon this week and upset Brisbane, they're they're on for the finals with that draw. Are we dreaming? You are. I think we're dreaming a little bit, but it's not it's not an outrageous dream. No. Like it's it's when you look at the teams they're playing, you couldn't pick. You know, aside from Geelong, you couldn't really pick a better run home. Yeah, I mean, look, keep keep your eyes on them, and I think Christian, you're right. Even if they don't make it this year there's plenty to look forward to next season and beyond as well they, they make really it, I know it's charge. a bit it's a big throw ahead Do you but, want me to make but are a they, call are they are they a finalist for 2023 uh, yeah. yes that has to be that has to be their aim and yes I'd be tip, I'd be happy to put them in my top eight for the next year they should be aiming to win the flag Jake I mean yeah like, I think every team should but realistically like then you know teams know that okay we're not winning the flag this yeah. year but next year I think yeah I think they're they're around about that Seventh, eighth, ninth—they're around there now. You know, which is which is a credit to them because I think a lot of the times when we've been doing our ladder predictors over the last three or four years, it's they've just been, and I will get down to sixteenth. All right, we've got to put Gold Coast somewhere here. So, uh, it's it's been really good to watch. They're fun to watch, and I must say, the last three, the last three Gold Coast games, the the one against Richmond with the 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 Anderson finish, uh, the Port game and the Collingwood game, they've been three. Fantastic games. They've become a really fun, good side to watch. I've thoroughly enjoyed them. Fair enough. Uh, we haven't really spoken about the, the goal, the Noah Anderson goal, but it's another winner after the siren, Jake. And you came to the office this morning with some thoughts on goals after the siren because there haven't been too many misses after the siren to lose a game. Well, I was thinking back the last five, ten years, and I, w- I could only think of one off the top of my head, one miss for to win the game and that was Isaac Smith against Ge- Geelong when he was playing at Hawthorne in that qualifying final 2016 16 or 17 16 it was yep. 16 yeah that was the only one I could think of that was the only miss then I was just th- you know we were just rattling them all off we had Jack Nunes and Robbie Gray last year we've had uh, Luke Shuey kick one we've had Gary Rowan we've had Zach Bailey We've had Jeremy McGovern. Jordan Dawson this season. Jordan Dawson. David Mundy. Sam Lloyd. Ash McGrath. I mean, how about how far back do you want to go? Well, well, well. I've gone back to just, just 10 years. I've gone back to 2012. And just a quick look at the, at, the, at the players that have kicked goals after the siren to win and the players that have missed after the siren to, to lose the game. Um, so 17 players have, have done it, have kicked a goal after the siren to win. And one has kicked a goal to draw. And one's kicked a goal to draw, so we'll we'll call that eighteen. Only four players have missed a shot in the last ten years after the siren 
which resulted in them losing the game. I, might, I will say you're taking liberty in in the four in terms of four four gettable shots. There was another four shots taken. From yeah, I'm not, inclu- I'm not included. Uh, okay, I'm not including. Okay, I agree with you. I agree with you. Dion yeah, Prestia from halfway what against is a Sydney shot or something. After the siren, so, yeah. No, that doesn't count. A shot that's that's a legitimate chance of scoring. You can't say, oh well, he had a mark from 90 metres out and the siren went. That doesn't yeah. count. So so Hamish McIntosh against Essendon for North Melbourne in 2012. David Mundy missed against the Cats in 2014 at GMHBA Stadium. Uh, Harry Taylor missed against the Bulldogs for the Cats yeah, Harry in Taylor's 2018. Harry Taylor's one I forgot about. Uh, and that was the most recent one. The rest of them have, sort of, have fallen short. So and David, then Isaac David Smith. Myers, Tom McCartan, Adam Kennedy and Dion Pressey. And they're all, they were all like 70 They're all miles out, yeah. They, they don't count those ones. So, so we, if we want to say 18 and 4... I know Clutch. it's not a big a big sample size. And and the other part of it is, it's not as if all of those shots have been 10 metres out directly in front. Most of those kicks, look at Gray and, and Nunes last year. Two of the toughest kicks you'll Jordan see. Jordan Dawson? Um, Jordan Dawson's one from the boundary. Gary Rowan kicked one from that same boundary last year, I reckon, at GMHBA as list. well. Yeah. Um, Sam Lloyd's one was tough out, uh, 45 out on the, on the angle. Yeah. Um, a lot of these kicks have been tough kicks, so I I don't know what it was because I was going to say like why I don't know how we answer it, but it just seems like you, you'd think that it would almost be the other way around four and eighteen like a lot when of the pressure. pressure's on. Well, yeah, but, you're talking pl- about overall accuracy almost being down below fifty percent if mm. you're including missed shots, and yeah, you talk about the numbers you just have at seventeen and four. It's that's a phenomenal one. Just that, yeah, it? sort of like, yeah, it makes me think of. Is there something we're not recording? You know, but again, looking at the last ten years, everything is recorded. It's all you know, all the shots at goal. So I think it is. It's just a quirky stat in terms of when a guy has a shot after the siren, yeah. you'd almost be backing him to kick it. Going on May- maybe the fact that they're obviously gettable shots, forty-five on the, on an angle, makes you relax a bit more. If 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 you're twenty out directly in front, I reckon that's almost a harder kick <laughs> than forty out on the on the boundary because you're like, well, if I miss this, no one's going to crush me. But if I miss twenty out directly in front, that people will be showing that for the rest of my life. What's the most impressive one that we've seen over the last sort of ten years? It has to be Nunes, doesn't it? I oh, think Nunes is the best kick. Yeah. Yeah, the best, the best one, like the best one, I reckon celebration wise, um, was the Sam Lloyd, Lloyd one on the yeah. on his knees. Yeah, Lloyd on his knees, Jack Rewalt jumping over the top like <laughs> fist pumping, <laughs> BT's commentary. I think that oh, they're all good. I but think the, the the poetry of the Zach Bailey winner the week after the week after they were robbed, they were absolutely robbed down at Geelong. Yeah, I kind of like that one as well. Yeah, Jordan Dawson, not a bad way to start showdown. your career in the showdown. Yeah, there's been a few. Uh, there's a few uh, points to win as well. Uh, Michael Walters a couple of years ago against yep. Brisbane. That was an upset well, at Optus. Yeah. Um, kicked a point to win. Jimmy Bartel obviously did it uh, for Geelong. He did. Uh, Tom Hawkins Hawthorne? kicked it behind to draw. Yeah, against so the that Giants. was a missed opportunity. Would yeah. we call that a missed opportunity? Yeah, we'll call that a miss too. Okay. So eighteen and five. Yeah, we'll That's call that a real, miss, isn't it? It's yeah. kind of a real quirky one that that yeah. you don't really think about, but there have been a lot of winners and not too many losers. It's funny because Tom Hawkins, Tom Hawkins, Gary Rowan, David Mundy. There's a few. There's a few names that pop up a couple of times on this. Some clutch on these players. Lists. Uh, um, but yeah, just an interesting one that sort of caught my eye. So next time you next time you see a player, and and we we generally get so we've had two this year. We've had Anderson and. Um, Dawson and Dawson this year. We had a cut. We I think we, we had, had Gorn, four Rowan last year and Bailey last year and Nunes. Nunes and Robbie Gray was twenty twenty. None in twenty. Gray was twenty twenty. Yeah, that was during the first lockdown year. Oh, of course, there was no one there. But that that's crazy. That's already they're gone two years. <laughs> um, yeah, but next time you see a player lining up um, after the siren, just just remember that they're 
of, of the of since since 2012, they're they're like a 75 percent chance to kick it. <laughs> well, the next ten will miss. You watch now. Uh, a couple of list of questions, and if you do want to get some in, please footy tips on Twitter at footy tips uh, or hashtag Ask Champion Data. We can get some some questions in, and we we love answering these. So so do keep them flowing. Christian, Castagna's touch kick at the goal. Uh, touch kick at goal late in the fourth quarter against Gold Coast was recorded as a rush behind. Does this count as a missed shot at goal for Castagna? And if not, how is this counted in the team's expected score? Yeah, so a few, uh, few parts to that question. So as smothered it is, it's a sort of a quirky one and a bit of a different one, but it's, again, it's always been like this since Champion Data um, took over in 99. You can only assume it was recorded like this beforehand. If your kick is smothered, um, and goes through for a score, it's actually a rush behind. So the definition of a smother is your kick has been, or the trajectory of a kick has been changed based on a defensive player's action. Um, so we've got two two ways of having a behind. It's either a smothered kick, uh, which Castanias was, was clearly smothered and sort of bounced in a different direction and went through for a score, which goes through for a team behind. Uh, so Richmond get one point. Or we've got a touch kick. So again, you kick it, yep, there's all the score the review fingers. ones. It flicks the fingers and goes through for a goal. Spirit fingers. That'll actually go down as a touched behind and be credited to the player that kicked the ball. So we're sort of saying his kick went through for a score, but it was just touched on the way through. Right. Whereas, yeah, that's where we've got to make the call of whether we want to put in a smother or a touched. I remember the Castagna one was clearly a sort of smother deflected to the left. So, again, Castagna does have a shot at goal for that. He has a shot smothered. Um, so we can sort of see how many times your shots have been smothered. Um, in front of goal, it won't impact on his accuracy. Accuracy though, so again, this is one that we've um, that we've argued a player's accuracy. If you're if you kick it straight at goal and it gets smothered, was that an inaccurate kick, or was it just a really really good defensive action? Mm. So we've sort of taken that out from a player's accuracy, um, but and it will go into again. So we'll go into team shots at goal, but not into a team's accuracy. Player shot at goals or a player's accuracy. Expected um, score is the interesting one. I'll have to have a look at that one. Um, because, yeah, it, it should be looking at the point that he's kicking it from um, and taking that into account. But again, I, don't, I just don't know once it's smothered whether... Even it's a defensive act. Yeah, how much yep. sort of that changes the expected score. We'll um, so I have to you. get back to you on that one. But again, it is... Again, I, I remember calling that and I hate it. I sort of call it. It's like, well, if we turn around now and Castagno ends up kicking five goals straight for the game, everyone goes, no, I remember him kicking it behind. It's just like, well, he, he kicked it, but it was actually, you know, judged as a rush Certainly behind. Certainly didn't kick five straight. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Luckily, that story didn't play out. Uh, we'll chase that up for you. Uh, Jake, what percentage of the time does the player who gets the medal in a game like Anzac Day or the Showdown get the three votes on Brownlow Medal Night? Do you know? Well, I did You're a know. big Brownlow watcher, and you love these kind of quirky who gets interviewed after the game, yeah. normally gets the three votes, the inter- etc. The interview something I've been keeping a close eye on the last couple of years. Um, but the problem is you get players playing a 200 that sort of blow it out of proportion uh, because they're ten, just... Ten touches and a goal yeah. would interview them. No, the the medal is quite high. I looked this up about, oh, I reckon, three or four years ago. I looked at the previous three years, and it was around 85 to 90% of the time. The player that won the medal in, say, a showdown or Anzac Day, bear in mind, back this is back when we had less or fewer medals. Now there seems to, we seem to have a lot more medals in games. But back then, yeah, it was about 85 to 90% of the time that a player won the medal, they'd get the three votes on Brownlow, uh, Brownlow Knight. You know, the interesting one this year will be Queen's birthday with Cox and Oliver because there was a lot of... Oliver got the got the medal and people were saying, well, it should have been Mason Cox, Collingwood won. Um, he was the best player on the ground and Oliver Oliver got it. So it'll be interesting to see who gets that one, that gets the three there on Brownlow night. 
but yeah, it's 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 certainly above eighty percent and probably closer to to that ninety percent mark. Uh, you can check out Jake's Brownlow predictor on the website as well, ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL. Any movement this week? Yes. Uh, no votes for Oliver O'Neill and Andy Brayshaw, another three. He's gone back to the top. You know, <laughs> oh, it's, it's starting to, you know, at the start of the year, it was a nice story, and then it became, oh, yeah, he's going to be a top 10 finisher. Oh, he could be top Are we going to have another four players get more than 30 votes again? I think we'll have three. I think those three will all get 30. Um, Some prop bets for you out there? Then Cripps and, and Petrarca probably a little bit behind, and... and Tuke Miller's the one to keep an eye on. He's just having another really good season again. Just just in their best two two players every single time, um, and obviously Gold Coast winning some more games this year. And with that with that run home, like I mentioned before, mm. if they are to if they to win four of those games and they'll be favoured in four four of them, if they to win four and he's if if he's picking up twos and and maybe the odd three, he's certainly a chance to to come clock to to put himself right in the contention. We'll keep an eye on that as the season draws to a close. Is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? The segment where I'll say a statement, you guys tell me whether the hype is justified. I'm speaking in hyperbole. The Bulldogs' biggest issue is their defence, Jake. I think I think it clearly is. You know, they're, they're conceding, I think, 15 or 16 more points per game than they were last year. The defence hasn't improved from where it was. And I think even in their premiership year going back six years ago and from there all the way to last year when they made another grand final, I think everyone would always was happy to say, oh, that's their weakest point of, you know, weakest line on the ground. Um, but having said that, the midfielders aren't giving them, the midfielders aren't helping them out too much. The, the ease in which teams are being able to move the ball down the field, yep. then they're putting the, the Bulldogs def- defenders under immense pressure. So you can kind of look at the, the actual, si- the, the, the back six and say, gee, they're not, they're not holding up their end of the bargain. But also, you do, we, we've said it before on this podcast, defense is an 18-man thing. You, it starts, every player on the ground is responsible for defending. And at the moment, the team defence is just not good enough. They do seem a couple of key positions short, though. So how do we? How do you fix that for the dogs? The way that I see it is, you look up into the forward line, and not everyone's playing all at once at the same time. But they've got a glut of big men up forward. So is it time to, you know, look at trading someone out or or um, moving someone into the back line who's 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 normally a forward? I mean, they got rid of Lewis Young, who's now tra- mm. like. Uh, thriving at Carlton in, a, in an intercept and defending role. Yeah. Uh, clearly, they need some more help back there. So so what can you kind of see as a, as a way that they can do that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. They've got, as you say, they do have quite a few forwards, but are they, those forwards that they have, are they, yeah. do, do other clubs want them? Well, I mean, that's the question. I, I don't think there's anyone, there's no one, aside from Aaron, Aaron Norton and, and Josh Bruce, who are the two that will be playing in the team when they're both fit. I mean, is there anyone else that a club is desperate to get on there? Jamari Hugo Hagen's a pick one. Sam Darcy has, hasn't played this year. Sam Darcy hasn't issues, played. And you, like, yeah. These guys are going to clearly going to be part of their future. They're part of the future, but right now they're, they're not players that are going to be able to contribute that much. No, Josh Shackey, could you try him back? I mean, there's a glut they of were, these. They, they did have, try, they yeah. try that, so they've just, yeah, they've just got to get creative, you're right. So I think they've been able to and been big on it previously they Bulldogs and it was an issue to me about round 13 or 14 last year they were so dominant in every area they were just best at clearances best at contested possessions best at keeping it inside 50. they were just they were just so good with the ball that we didn't see much of their defense but their defense was always eighth ninth tenth eleventh rank so now when you stack them up against the top eight sides they're really like their defense really sort of you know is much lower ranked than the other ones but again it's 
you're right. It's personnel. I mean, Aaron Norton was drafted as one of the best key defenders, um, best intercept markers out of WA, and you know, he's do you just... think? Do you think he would have? Like, I know it sounds crazy to say, but is it? Is that? If you were Luke Beveridge, or if you were looking long term for the Bulldogs, are you thinking he's eventually going to play there? It's he's too late. On the he's, he's, that's what I know. Yeah, you've built your forward line. It's it's almost too. It is seriously too late because Norton. I think you know Cody Waitman. I think has played his whole career as Aaron Norton has been his key forward that he sort of worked yeah. underneath and things like that. So I was big. I, I didn't think. I thought the move of Norton forward in the first year was a mistake. Maybe to take that back, but now he's mm. not going back to defence ever. You've got it's, to keep him as a forward. And you've got to find another defender. Sliding doors decision though, because if you don't do that, and then say you you wait the year, Bruce has that that really nice year, and then you just play Jamara more, or you play whoever, yeah. or you, you bring Shaki in and say we're going to give you ten games in a row, and Norton's back, then maybe the defence probably isn't as as the way it is now. They they might not make yeah. a grand final last year, but now they'll have these two Jamara Hagen and Sam Darcy to look forward to and, and there's more opportunity for them. So the fact that he's there in the forward line, there's no one in the back line, but there's this sort of like waiting list of players to mm. come into that forward line kind of just makes it this it's it, it's a hard decision to have made, I'm sure, back back when Beveridge made that decision to play Norton forward. But if he'd played him back, the makeup of the side would would be completely different. Mm. It's just fascinating, isn't it? Uh, the Crows are escaping criticism for their season because they've had just two wins since round six, Christian. Uh, they blast must, them. Yeah, well, no, I won't blast them. But I will say they must sort of, they must smile to themselves at West Coast and North for having what's happening to them. I mean, similar, I think Adelaide season is next year. We've, we're being patient with them. We know where they're at. They did sort of, you know, got the new coach and sort of bottomed out and sort of, are going through that rebuild. I think everyone was happy to be patient with them. Oh, there is some impressive... Again, when comparing them to North Melbourne, Adelaide have a lot more uh, areas where they're ranked 8th, ninth, or 10th, where things are starting to turn from them. They're one of the hardest teams to go end-to-end against. They're pretty hard to score against from clearances and things like that. So they they do have a good defensive side of their game to them. So there's signs there, you know, when we look at them and from an analyst perspective that you sort of say, okay you can see what they're trying to do and where their strengths are going to be. But again, if they have another two, three win season next year in 2023, that's when I think the heat will come. But I think they were always supposed to go through this year. Just, just got to get better. And I think, you know, that again, Rochelle is probably you know, the hype of Rochelle is probably dropped off in the last four or five weeks, but he's mm-hmm. been a good find. Dawson's been a good pickup. Yep. Uh, they're obviously happy with Nick's, um, you know, re-signing him and things like that. But as I said, yeah, just being able to see a style and I can almost say Adelaide are uh, almost, um, Becoming a hard team to play against—that's always a good sort of a good sort of profile to have. I think the one of the things that that can affect sides like this that are trying to build a build a culture of success is when you have someone like Rory Sloan, mm. leader skipper doesn't play for a long time. Um, Matt Crouch in and out of the side. We don't really know why because he still collects the ball and still collects it in the sandfall. Having this sort of lack of experience in the midfield obviously doesn't help as well. Yeah, and the other name there that hasn't played all year is Paul Seedsman. And I think yep. we spoke about Ben Cunnington, and I'm not saying that Paul Seedsman comes in Adelaide's a top eight side, but we do forget how good he's been as a as a wingman over the last couple of seasons. And for him not to play all year, it's just you know you've you've nailed it. You know, three of their most three of their most experienced you know best players in in Crouch and Crouch Seedsman and Sloan. Um, you know, you bring those guys back with Laird and and Keys. And some of the other younger guys that are in there now, I think it's starting to look like a pretty, pretty nice uh, midfield. But yeah, I, I just, I still think there's question marks in the in defence, and and you know, there's a few, there's just a few little areas that they still need to plug. But you do look around and you think, com- in, you know, com- 
comparing certainly to North Melbourne and some of the other sides that are struggling. You you can you can pick out half a dozen players that you think, gee, this guy's a really, really good player. That's part of the future. Uh, Taylor Walker's re-signed for one more season. Uh, good call. Good call for who? For Adelaide? Oh, open-ended question. Yeah, I think so. I think he's. I think when we spoke about this last week, I reckon, or the week before on the pod, um, you know, he came back in because we were sort of we were debating, you know, clubs might be interested in going after someone like Taylor Walker, um, a Collingwood, or or you know, maybe you know, a Bulldogs or something like that, and 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 try and get push some of those guys into the into the back line. But um, yeah, I, I think it's a good thing for Adelaide. He came back into the side after his suspension, played some really good footy. Probably been a little bit more inconsistent this year. He's played a couple of couple of quieter games, but you know you can sort of then look at the supply he's getting as well as as the reason behind that. But I think he, he's he's a good he's he's a player you want want to have, and I think you know having having him there with some of the other younger guys in the forward line, it's only going to help them going forward. Uh, last one before we wrap things up, Christian. We saw the Lions were decimated uh, this week, having to to pull out a thousand games of experience. I think you've gone and found out. Uh, it, because of health and safety protocols, it seems like COVID sort of ripping through the lines again this week, which is obviously not good. So my statement is, there'll be a tipping point for health and safety protocols this season where the AFL starts to rethink its policy on, on postponing games or the season. Uh, I'd have to disagree with you on that one again. I think, they, so going to Brisbane, I mean, they lost 1,087 games worth of experience. Um Again, I don't know. You know, I know Zorko had a different injury, so I don't know how many of those were um, COVID lost games, yeah. but um, still a big out. But they've had 520 come in. I think that was helped by you know Mitch Robinson came in with 240 games, which sort of helped that number. But again, I think we go back to rounds two, three, and four, where West Coast were going through what they did for the AFL, sort of to sit fat through that and sort of say, no, we've got a rule, we're going to keep it. I don't see anything happening in the next five or six weeks that'll make them sort of do a backflip on that. Like, I, I could be wrong because we're getting into finals and a pointy end of the season, but... Yeah, that's that's kind of the aspect of it. Yeah, again, just that... What happens if, if it if It's, 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 only, it's a one-week thing, and I don't think the AFL can do that much, that if you... Mm. We have the week off before... We have the pre-final buy, say, mm. um, and then we get to the Monday before final starts and, you know, COVID rips through the Melbourne Footy Club for that week. Stiff, not much you can do. I think so. I think it is. It's just... It's stiff and, yeah. Well, maybe the... I mean, Brisbane have... have I think they're clearly going to say to their players to kind of just keep things under wraps. We we had Josh Dunkley in a couple of weeks ago, Jake, mm. and he said uh, he he became a hermit. He, he sort of stuck around and was not going out as much. I mean, he's not a big sort of party guy, he sort of said, but he, you know, he's not going out for brekkie as much. He might get a takeaway coffee, which is, funnily enough, his undoing last season when he had to miss a couple of things. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> like, people think, oh, you've, you know, yeah, of course, the more you go out, the more you expose yourself to it, but... You can go out once for the week and you may just be unlucky and get it. So, yeah. And especially if you're going... Like, you still have to train. You know, once one player gets at the club, it, that's why it's very easy for it to just start Your ripping through. Your partner could bring it with, with them. Like, I, I got COVID off my partner, so I didn't even go out to get it. I, it was brought to me. <laughs> so it happens. I, I agree with Christian. I think it's stiff. You're just unlucky. And I don't know what the AFL... What's the AFL going to do grand final week if I think a team... grand final week's the easy one. You can just delay it and say, well... But if you're the other team, you say, well, hang on, we don't want to delay it. Can you delay it? Is Robbie Williams available for another weekend? <laughs> well, they might get someone better, like uh, what ended up happening with um, Meatloaf and... Uh, who was Lionel, the week after? Lionel Richie. Lionel. I loved it. Dancing on the... Yeah, I was singing that this morning. Uh, yeah, that was that was even better. So, who knows? We get Robbie and then someone else, maybe. Get him to do a, a, a free concert on the uh, on the MCG for everyone. 
Very good. There we go. All right, uh, I think that wraps things up for this week. Uh, Jake, good to speak with you. Christian, good to be back in the studio with you. And to everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod, wherever you get your podcasts.